We've been in pretty much a year-long series going through Paul's letter to the church in Rome and just understanding how such a, a doctrinally and theologically rich book actually applies in shaping our lives as Christians, how we can live in a predominantly secular culture now and still stay relevant within um, our mission to preach God's word to those who haven't heard it. And so um, this, this last section, we broke it into five parts, and we're in the, the fifth part as we only have about three more weeks left in Romans. But this, this last part has been our practice. How do we take what we've learned based on Paul's theology and doctrine, understand who we are, and, and how do we put that into practice? Right? Because if it doesn't translate from knowledge of God and what he's done to our lives, then it's meaningless. And, and the last two weeks we've been talking about this idea that, that despite differing convictions, the church can be unified within its diversity, and that then propels us on mission as a a unified body. And so, but when that, if you've been with us the last couple of weeks or if you've maybe listened online or something like that, the, the, the problem that happens and we hear that we're supposed to be diverse and that we can be diverse despite differing convictions and all that's great, but a lot of times we get stuck in the how is that possible, right? How is it possible to actually have someone who has a differing convictional belief or is different than you on every aspect of their life, yet be unified as members of the body of Christ. And that's what we actually get to today. We get to the, actually the most important aspect of really the idea that Paul's portraying in Romans is because it's not enough just to have good theology, correct doctrine, if we don't have a unified front in accepting others who have different convictions than we do, but it's also not good enough to welcome others who have different convictions if you don't have the doctrine and theology in which to understand whether or not their convictions are based on God's command for how we're to live. That You have to have both of those combined, and that's exactly what we see Paul um, writing about in this middle part of chapter 15. And so if you will follow along as I read, I'm going to start in verse 7, and then we're going to read through... Um, verse 13, and then maybe go further as we keep going. So we'll start 7 through 13. Um, In Romans chapter 15, verse 7, Paul says, Therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to conform the promise, confirm the promise given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing your name. And again it said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he will arise to rule the Gentiles. In him will all Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. If you will, pray with me as we ask the Spirit to guide us through our time today. Father God, I just pray as we have read your word now that we would 
be submissive to your spirit as that truth is applied to our hearts and our minds and our lives. God, we thank you that you've given us your spirit to inject your truth into our hearts. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. And so as we read that passage, it's, it's kind of, depending on how your Bible is structured, it probably looks a little different in some of ours. Um, seven is usually atta- um, attached to the paragraph above. And, and so we, we, we tend to not look at these aspects together. But what I want to do today is show you that, that even if you read it, you might have understood that, that we find the key to Christian fellowship. True Christian fellowship is found in this passage today, or the how are we going to be a diverse, unified body on mission for God in our life and through our worship and still be able to accomplish that without just constantly fighting. Because we have the how-to in this passage. We understand that, that it's by the power of the Spirit that we're able then to be a diverse, unified body, that it's propelled by Christ's example and ultimately a product of Christ's work as we acknowledge what he's done for us as we look to understand what true Christian fellowship looks like. And so I, w- I want to do this. It's going to drive some of you crazy. Uh, uh, I, I woke up this morning, I was looking through stuff, and I completely rearranged what I did. I don't know if you've ever gone into something where you had a plan, and then right before the plan changed, Right? That's, that's what happened this morning. I was up looking through everything, and I was like, this works better backwards. And so we're going backwards from what I originally planned, but I do think it works better. And so if that's you, that, that you like things linear, like if you see things, and if you like to structure linear, just work with me, because we're going to start at the end, and then we'll pick back up and go forward from there. Okay? So I don't want you to, to freak out. We're starting in verse 13, even though that's the last one we read. I know some of you, that kind of threw you off right there. Just, just come with me. And we'll be okay, because I know some of you are like, awesome, we like this, mix it up. But others, I get you, I understand that, that you need that. So I acknowledge that, but we're doing it anyway. So um, if, we look at, if we look at verse 13, it really sets the heart um, for true Christian fellowship. Because we understand that it's fellowship that we have as Christians, unified yet diverse convictionally or racially, ethnically, economically. All of this diversity that we say need to be unified has to be powered by the Holy Spirit for it to actually happen. And when we look at verse 13, it's a refreshing and a reassuring verse if we look at it because he, he breaks it. If you didn't notice, he changes how he's saying it because this is a prayer. Paul's praying. He says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, right? So that the power of the Holy Spirit may abound in hope. Okay, see, he's, he's reassuring us that despite the, 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 despite the characteristics that true fellowship must have, which is joy, peace, and hope, that you're reassured because you realize that that's not possible in you. And that's reassuring because so many times we fell to, to feel those characteristics, and then it's like we, there's nothing that we can do. But what we have to understand is that joy, peace, and hope, which leads to being able to be unified, even though we're diverse, doesn't originate from us. And that, that should bring, we, we need to understand that God is the source of all hope. See, that's how he starts, right? He says, may the God of hope. See, God's the originator and the source of all hope. And so may the God of hope then give you these things. He's saying God is the source of hope. It's not our money. It's not our success. It's not how many followers or likes we get on, on posts that we have. It's not how known we are. 
that gives us hope in this life. It's the God who originates hope and is the source of that hope. And that should reassure us as Christians when we feel and we hear that we're called to be unified yet diverse because that's a scary prospect. Because so many times we've tried to allow others who are different than us into our world and it's just exploded. So then we have to ask ourselves, well, how do we get this hope? What, is, what, is, what do we have to do? If the God of hope is, that's the source of hope, how do we achieve these things? And, and first, it's simply, we just follow Paul's example. We pray continually. We seek God. And then we understand that we notice that that prayer, result, it, it resets our posture to understanding that God is the, the source of hope and the joy and the peace. And so then we realize that we, if we would have joy and peace, it comes not through striving, but through believing. You see that in that, that middle part of that verse there, with all joy and peace, what? In believing. So joy and peace in our lives now come from a belief that God is actually working in this world. And so if you don't feel a piece of, a sense of joy and peace in your life right now, there's a good chance that you're not trusting him, that you're not believing that he has your best interest in mind. That, that you're looking at your life saying, everything's chaotic, there's no way I can do anything, there's no way I can accept all these other people in because my life is crazy, and you don't have any joy and peace, and it's because you don't believe that God actually is working in your life. You're not satisfied in him, you think that he's messed up or that he owes you something else. We cannot have joy and peace unless we truly believe that God is enough to sustain us despite what our life looks like. Joy and peace are only possible when we believe in God and by the Spirit and the power of the Spirit working in us, that joy and peace points us to the hope. That's what Paul ends his prayer with, right? that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. So we get hope by the power of the Spirit when we believe God, when we trust God, and when we believe and trust God, the Spirit works in our hearts, reminding us of the joy and peace that we have in Christ, and that points us to the hope that we have in life despite the circumstances. So Christian fellowship, so true Christian fellowship, if we want our church, our body localized here of Christ, if we want to see true Christian fellowship, it's a result of us believing and trusting that God is actually enough to sustain us and to give us the power to actually be unified despite diversity. And if we don't understand that, if we don't believe, then we're not going to be unified. We're going to be selfish because we are by nature. So only through the power of the Holy Spirit will true Christian fellowship happen because only through the power of the Spirit are we able to actually trust and believe that God is the originator and the source of the hope and the joy and the peace that we have, and that propels us forward. So then what do you do? You pray. And I, I was talking to Lindsay the other day. I don't know if this is a, a good pastoral thing, but you'll understand. Just, just trying to be where I'm at. I, I was talking about how so many times people come and ask me for help. And I, and I think now what I'm going to start saying is that don't come ask me for help if you haven't prayed about it. Right? Because I can't fix problems. Christ can. 
I can point you to him, but, but so many times people just unload on staff members or pastors within the church and say, fix my problems, but they're unwilling to submit their lives through prayer. So it's like, if you're not going to do that, I'm sorry, let me just tell you now. If you're not going to submit your life to Christ and believe that he can sustain you, your problems aren't going to go away because this world is full of problems. And so how do we find joy and peace that allows true Christian fellowship to happen? We pray and we constantly trust, seek, and submit our lives to Christ. Every day we wake up, we say, I'm yours. And then we walk alongside each other, even though we're diverse. Because that's what God has called us to do. And it's his power at work within us, even though we have differing convictions, even though we come from different backgrounds, even though we come from all over this country and world. We can be united because we trust God. We seek after him. We submit our lives to him. And that is what propels us to have true fellowship because it's a result of believing that God can sustain us, that he is actively working to accomplish his goal to bring glory to his name through the expansion of his kingdom. And when we understand that it's the power of the Spirit, then we can get to the practical aspects of what that looks like then in our lives. And that's where we go back to the beginning of this passage. If you look at back at verse 7, it says, Therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And see, what we see in there is this idea that not only is true fellowship powered by the Spirit, but it's also propelled by Christ's example. That that Christ's example propels us into living within a diverse yet unified community of believers. So joy then is seen in our lives every day as we're united with Christ and with other believers because of Christ's example. Right? And so by the power of the Spirit, we're propelled into joyful Christian fellowship because of what Christ's example is for us. And that's what he's talking about in verse 7. Right? He calls the church to be radically unified yet diverse. Why? Because Christ welcomed those people. You see that, right? Welcome one another as Christ is welcoming you. So there's the how. How do we do this? How do we allow ourselves to be radically unified yet diverse we welcome and accept one another regardless of background, regardless of, of race or ethnicity, regardless of economic status. We welcome one another, right? And then we realize that it's one another. We realize then that, that not only to have true fellowship, it has to go both ways, right? It's not saying those that have the worst time right now go to the ones that are having a pretty all right time and just unload on them. It says, welcome one another. So it's, it's an exchange. Fellowship is a relationship that goes both ways. That Christ accepted us, and we then allow ourselves to be unified with Christ, and we realize that we can accept one another because that's what Christ has done. He's accepted those who are diverse and different, and so we can. Why? Because Christ welcomed us, right? You can't get past the gospel. Right? Because Christ welcomed us. And you, this is where we have to be honest with us. This is where you need to be honest with yourself. Because when Christ called you, you weren't the best prospect for him. Like He wasn't looking about and saying, you know what, I'm going to find someone I need to expand my kingdom. And, and, and he found you. Like you weren't, if you want to go, you, you go sports-wise, you're not the top draw, draft pick. All right? you, you weren't in the draft. 
right? And we have to be honest about that because so many times we fail to realize that Christ welcomed us. Like we think that we owed, like that he gained something, like that we added something to his team. No. We were in active rebellion. You weren't, you weren't a functioning good addition to his kingdom. You were in active rebellion against it, and yet he said, I'll welcome you in. Not because you deserve it, but because I am gracious and loving. But so often we don't believe that, and so we're not propelled by Christ's example to extend fellowship to others. Whether that be because of pride or arrogance or lies that we've been told, misrepresentations of the gospel that so many times we fail to realize that we can accept other people because Christ has accepted us and we need no other reason. And then we have to understand the end goal. That's to bring God glory. That Christ didn't distinguish. He welcomed active sinners and rebellion. Why? To bring glory to his Father. And so we welcome others who have submitted their lives to Christ despite differences to bring glory to God. And that's what you end in verse 7, right? For what? For the glory of God. And so the whole point of the church, the whole point of what we do to expand God's kingdom by preaching his gospel is to bring glory to him. It's not to point to us. Christ's example propels the church into radical, diverse unity, all to bring glory to his name. Leon Morris um, says it best this way. He says that God's glory was promoted when Christ received us as sinners. It's further advanced when we, who are by nature sinners and wrapped up in our own concerns, instead receive our brothers and sisters in Christ with warmth and love. Think about that. How does the world see the church as different? It's by welcoming people who they wouldn't welcome themselves. And that brings glory to God. Because then the question always becomes, why would you do this? And you say, because look what God has done for me. I was in an active rebellion against him, living in sin for myself, yet he sent his son not to just come, but to die for me. And that brings glory to God's name. So the church brings glory to God by allowing the example of Christ to accept everyone, to propel us into diverse unity And that's the mark of true Christian fellowship. And it's only possible then through the power of the Spirit. And so as we look at this, how does that accomplish in our lives? We pray that we see people the way Christ does. And that doesn't mean that we don't call sin, sin. We absolutely do, because you can't call people to Christ if you don't first acknowledge that we're all sinners. But that includes us saying that I was a sinner too. Like, we're not perfect, We're not saved into perfection. Ultimately, in glory, when we're glorified with Christ for eternity, yes. Now, no. And so we allow Christ's example to infiltrate our lives and our words and our hearts, and we see people as he does. We humble ourselves so that we can see people the way he did, and that propels us then to true fellowship that propels us to sit down with each other in a living room despite differing convictions, knowing that it's because of his acceptance in us that we have common ground. That that our distinct and different convictions don't drive us away, but they draw us in when we realize that even despite those convictions, 
we've submitted our lives to Christ, that he is Lord of that, and that's the unity that you find. We don't find unity in our lives here. We find unity in the fact that we've been united with Christ when we submit our lives with him. And then ultimately realize that that fellowship is, is not only propelled by Christ's example, but it's also a product of Christ's work. If you look at verses 8 through 12, we get an interesting little passage here. And, and so to, to kind of start this section, I want to ask you, why was Christ sent by the Father? All right, think about that. Why, what was the purpose? Why was Christ sent? And if we want to look at that and understand that, that a lot of times when you ask people that, if, if they've been church for a while, the, the, the verse that you might go to is John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Right? That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It's a great understanding. Why did Christ send? Because God loved us. But then you have to go further. Because John 3.17 says what? That he did not send his son in the world to condemn the world, but that they might be saved. And so God, the point of Christ being sent was to save people, sinners, in active rebellion. And when we understand that, that is a product, that, that fellowship is a product of that. That we see that his work in saving sinners instead of condemning them produces fellowship when we understand everyone through that same lens so who did he save all right that all who believe in him romans three twenty three, all have sinned and fallen short right but if you go back to romans 1 16 what is the gospel it's the power of god for salvation for all who believe the jew first and then also the gentile so Christ came not to condemn everyone, but to save everyone who submit to his lordship in their life, to acknowledge their act of rebellion and sin and submit their lives. And then you ask yourself, what does that have to do with fellowship? And I say that that's the catalyst of fellowship because you understand who you truly are. So that if Christ came to pursue reconciliation with active rebellious sinners, then maybe the church could pursue reconciliation with those who have been saved within the body. Instead, so many times the church isn't marked by that, is it? Instead, it's, it's like a bunch of, a lot of times the church can be seen as adults acting like selfish children and saying, oh, I gotta have this, I gotta have this. That's just sad. That doesn't bring glory to God. It, it points people away from the church because they get dysfunction in the world. They don't need it in the church. So when we look at this, we realize that if you verses 8 through 12, we'll read them again because it sets it up perfect. Verses 8 through 12 give us an understanding of how Christ's work produces true fellowship. So in verse 8, he says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to conform or confirm sorry, the promise given to the patriarchs. And in order that the Gentiles might also glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, therefore I'll praise you among the Gentiles in seeing your name. And again, it said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. And what we see in that is, is a great summary of why Christ's work produces fellowship. And first, we understand that God is faithful. Right? If you look at verse 8. That Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarch. God is faithful to accomplish his promises. So what Paul's saying is saying that Christ came. Why? To show that God was faithful to his promise. 
to show that when God promised to Abraham that he would be a father of many nations, that this was the promise of salvation to his people, that God is faithful to fulfill his promises. And in that, we realize then that that's when he welcomed people in. But how quick are we to cast someone aside when we feel like they're not worthy? We have to be driven to produce fellowship within us because of Christ's faithfulness or his example of faithfulness in God's work. We also see that what? That Christ, again, is the Savior of all people. This is a quote from Psalm 18 in verse 9. That in, in, in verse 9, he says what? Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. Right? So it's not then just the Jewish people. It's that God, through Christ, has saved all people. And so when we say all people are saved, then we realize that all people are saved and submitted their lives to the Lordship of Christ and make up the local body, then we can accept them because that's the commonality that we find. That we can be okay with differing convictions because Christ is the salvation of all people. And then you go the next step further in verse 10, another quote, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with all his people. So then we see the Gentiles rejoicing. This is actually a quote from Deuteronomy 32. The, the, the Gentiles then rejoice. And, and to, if we go back to the context of who Paul's writing to, this is crazy, right? Because you have the Jewish people that are holding on to their hair and say, we need to live under the law. We need all of these things. There are convictions there. And then you have the Gentile believers saying, we were never under that, so it's not good for us. And he's saying, no, Gentiles rejoice. Remember, we're all together in Christ. The Gentiles are rejoicing alongside the Jews. There's unity, yet differing convictions. True fellowship results in corporate worship because we come together saying look at what he's done and so what do we do we rejoice O Gentiles we ourselves are a continuation of that promise to rejoice O Gentiles and then what do we get again another quote from Psalm Psalm 117 verse 11 says praise the Lord all you Gentiles and let all the people let all the people so the Gentiles are included but then he also reminds us that it's everyone and it's all Gentiles, it's all people, including the people that are different than you. We praise God, right? Including those who have a different convictional belief, as long as it's not outside of God's commands, then we praise God together, unified yet diverse. And that's what the world doesn't understand about the church. Because society says, if you disagree with someone, you actually hate that person. That there's no way that you can disagree with someone convictionally and still love them. Yet we understand that in Christ, he's a savior of all people and that differing convictions don't have to be hatred, but yet we can love one another despite those and praise God unified, which brings glory to him. And then ultimately, when we get a quote here from Isaiah in verse 12, it says what? The root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, that he, that's Christ, the root of Jesse, that's Christ, will what? In him the Gentiles will hope. So our hope is in Christ as those who were not born a Jew. The Gentiles hope in Christ just as the Jews hoped in the promise fulfilled in Christ, the root of Jesse. So Gentile salvation flowed from the Jewish nation which fulfilled the promise of God to create a people for himself. And all of that leads us to unity because then we're able to unify ourselves despite differing convictions on the fact that Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation 
And if you look at 8 through 12, the one thing that you get is Christ is the only one that's responsible for saving people. He's the only one that gives hope. He's the only one that unifies people in salvation, that Christ is the only way. But that's not what is proclaimed in our culture. Our culture says Christ might be good for you, or Jesus is okay for you, but I've found another way. Right? And it doesn't matter what people claim to be Christian writings. If it says that Christ follows many paths, as the writer of the shack says, that's not the gospel. It's Christ is the only way. We've got to stop allowing culture to shift the narrative of Christ is okay for some, but for others they've found another way. We have to be a church that is unified because Christ unified us not because we found a better way. Right? And, it, and it happens all the time. I get so frustrated when I hear professing Christians say, well, God helps those who help themselves. No, he doesn't. The devil helps people who help themselves. It's exactly what happens. But how many times will we share something on Facebook because, oh, well, that's kind of good. A half-truth leads to total hell. And we have to be people that are unified because this is what the Bible says. It's in Christ alone. We can't sit by and let culture overtake the gospel narrative because there's no way. It's what Christ says, how quickly have you deserted the gospel? Not there's another one. And then when, you, when people question that and people say that Jesus, well, maybe not, then your response is, well, the Bible says, right? Isn't that what you say? Right, well, the Bible says, and they're like, well, what do you mean? Well, take them to Romans 15, 8 through 12, and then show them what you mean. Because what you see in this, if you notice, Paul quotes from the Psalms that Christ is the same, that Christ is the only way. Paul quotes from the law in Deuteronomy saying, Gentiles rejoice. And then Christ also quotes from the prophets where he says, Isaiah, the root of Jesse will come. And so if you look at the Psalms, prophets, and the law, that's the majority of the Old Testament literature. And so we say, look, it's right here in, in five verses. The whole summary of Scripture that Christ is all through every different type of literature that makes up the Old Testament. And if that's not good enough for them, just point them to Jesus himself in John 14. That I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He didn't say except through me unless you find a back door. It's through him. And so the church has to be people that realize that true Christian fellowship is only a product of seeing Christ's work applied to all people. And if Christ's work is applied to all people, then we can accept all people because we ourselves have been accepted when we didn't deserve it. And that leads to true fellowship. That's why the product of Christ's work is true Christian fellowship that despite differences is radically unified. Why? Because Christ can accept all people who submit to his lordship. Maybe it's time the church started doing that. That if Christ accepts all people that submit to his lordship and submit their lives to him, then maybe the church should accept all people who submit to his lordship and submit their lives to him despite differing convictions. And while we're as the local body, that's what we're called to do. We're called to be radically unified because Christ united us. That's the common thing. So you can look around, you can think about the, the relationships that you have with the people here. And if you're brand new, look around and see people that are different than you. And you wonder, there's no way. 
Well, if you're in Christ, that's all you need. There's the common bond. It doesn't have to be in how you live your life. It doesn't have to be what you do to earn a living. It's the fact that you've been redeemed by Christ and Christ alone. Therefore, you have a common bond. That doesn't mean everyone has to be best friends because it's not going to happen. But it means we can accept differing convictions and be unified on mission. And that brings us all the way back to verse 13, right? If you look at it, if you like visuals again, I'm not a, just going to throw this out there, I'm not a visual person at all, all right? Lindsay makes fun of me all the time. She's very visual. She sees, she has pictures in her mind. I won't say she sees things because that's a little, she doesn't see things. She just pictures stuff in her mind, right? Uh, sorry, that was going weird. But, uh, and, but I don't see it that way. But if you need to, this is the perfect example of what you have. How are you going to pursue true fellowship within the body you start what by praying that the god of hope would give you joy and peace and believing and that through the power of the spirit you may abound in hope right you start there and then you allow the power of the spirit to show you that christ's example propels you to true fellowship and then when you see christ's example you also realize that a product of christ's work on your behalf produces that fellowship but then that's it does that's not enough to keep you going so then what do you do you then continue to pray that the god of hope would give you joy and peace in believing so that the power of the spirit you might abound in hope and that's just that gives you a perfect circle that's how you continue to pursue true fellowship because you allow the power of the spirit to work in you you understand by belief that christ has accomplished what you were incapable of accomplishing and that gives you joy and peace so we see joy in our lives when we accept other people because christ accepted us we see peace in our mission as we proclaim the gospel because we realize that Christ accepted us and there are those who have not heard that message whom he will accept. And then we understand that we're powerful, powerfully united in our worship because Christ has unified us through his blood and sacrifice and that propels us to be uniquely diverse yet strongly unified in our lives and our mission and our worship. Let's pray.